3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, Thursday morning breakfast. It is the 2nd of July. Good morning, Max. How are you going? Good morning, Carly. I'm going really well. How are you? Yeah, good. Good to hear your voice. We haven't heard you on the beginning of the show for a while. I know. I missed you all. It's nice to be back. <laughs> yeah. You're wearing a lovely beanie. Where did you get this beanie from? Um, knitted by a lovely lady out at Warburton at a little market that I went to. And you're wearing Ooh. a um, very stylish, what would we call this, a scarf. <laughs> oh, I can't remember the proper term, but for listeners, yeah, it's like, you know, those little scarves that you wear when you're skiing. Um, not that that's been able to occur this year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure our listeners will care so much about. <laughs> um, I'm excited about tax returns soon. Um, this is great. Anyway, um, <laughs> listeners probably aren't excited about that either. What they should be excited about is our show. So first up, um, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Nikki Moody, Gomorrah woman and uh, sociologist based at the University of Melbourne. And she joins us to discuss recent changes to the university sector in Australia. Um, so this conversation will focus on the intersection between impacts of COVID-19 pandemic and austerity measures, um, such as fee hikes and the effects that this is likely to have on teaching and learning. And then we're going to hear a part of Writing Black, which is an event that was presented online by the Wheeler Centre in partnership with the Emerging Writers Festival last Thursday. Um, and this was hosted by Evelyn Arulan, um, where four emerging First Nations writers from the Next Chapter Writers Scheme, Jasmine McGocky, Rachel Oak-Butler, Lorna Munro, and Malika Geza-Fapafahi, um, discussed the creative processes writing for Black and settler readerships and how they respond to expectations of genre, character, and identity. And last up, we're going to hear from the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, who share with us some of their grave concerns with the proposed amendments to the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO, Amendment Bill, which was introduced on the 13th of May this year and threatens to severely limit democratic rights. Great show. Yeah, as always. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess next up is going to be Kate with the news headlines. Before we move to headlines today, just a warning to listeners that one of our stories discusses suicide. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. 
claims that Australian business owners are struggling to recruit staff because of a lack of applications have been revealed to be based on just a handful of responses from among 2,324 survey employees. So this revelation comes after the Prime Minister said um, on Monday that the high rate of Centrelink was acting as a barrier for people looking for jobs. So speaking to 2GB, he said that businesses have found it hard to find staff. The government released new data from the National Skills Commission on Tuesday that indicated some businesses had reported a shortage of applications for jobs, which had been the basis for the Australian newspaper's front-page story under the headline, Jobless Opt for the Dole Overwork. But only 72 of those businesses that were surveyed cited lack of applicants as a reason. The government is currently considering what to do with the increased payment before the, the September end date. And, to, and now to Victoria, where the state's peak Aboriginal health organisation has called for an urgent government intervention into the silent tragedy of Aboriginal suicide after a report found that rates among Aboriginal Victorians are twice that of the broader population. Nearly two-thirds of Aboriginal Victorians who take their lives had experienced abuse before their deaths, while a quarter experienced bullying, the report from Victoria's Coroner's Court has revealed. So the figure means Indigenous deaths from suicide make up 1.6% of deaths, while Aboriginal people represent only 0.8% of the state's total population. Jill Gallagher, Chief Executive of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations, said the report showed a tragic and unacceptable rise in suicide rates. And the Aboriginal community needed urgent answers. Any listeners who may need to reach out to someone are encouraged to call Lifeline by phone on 131114 or by visiting www.lifeline.org.au. And protesters involved in Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement are applying for Australia's protection in growing numbers, official Australian government, government data suggests. So in March, 27 Hong Kong Special Administrative Region passport holders applied for permanent protection visas. The following month, 17 more filed claims, even as the total number of protection visa visas lodgements fell dramatically within Australia's international border closure. The numbers are ha- higher than in the same period the previous year. Jane Poon, a representative of pro-democracy group Australia Hong Kong Link, said her organisation was helping several young Hong Kong men seek asylum in Australia. The men are frontline protesters with the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong and some face charges arising out of the protests that have gripped Hong Kong over the past year. So Poon um, was speaking to The Guardian Australia and she said her group feared that a harsh new national security law reportedly passed by Beijing on Tuesday could lead to more arrests and charges. And that's all for Thursday's headlines. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. 
G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe and of course, keep listening to 3CR community radio to keep connected to the community we'll get through this and hope to see you real soon bye you're listening to thursday breakfast on 3cr 855 am we now go to an interview with dr nikki moody who's a gomorrah woman and sociologist at the university of melbourne nikki and i talk about the recent changes to the tertiary education sector in australia looking at the way that impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic have intersected with neoliberal austerity measures in the sector and the impacts that this is likely to have on teaching and learning. Hi, Nikki. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Priya. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So I was wondering if we could start with you introducing yourself in a little more depth to listeners. Well, I'm a Gomorrah woman. I was born in a little place called Gunnedah in northern New South Wales, and that's where my Aboriginal family is from. And so I grew up in a rural Australia, uh, in New South Wales and Queensland. And I had the opportunity to have really wonderful access to education. And so I went to uni in Queensland and found myself uh, really passionate about um, access to higher education for Indigenous people. And so that's what I ended up doing my PhD research on was how can we get more mob to university? How can we make universities safer spaces for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? And how can we really think about universities as places that build on the relationships and networks that we have in our own communities uh, to strengthen our experience um, at uni when we get there? Awesome. Yeah, and I am aware that you've been doing a lot of research in this area ongoing. And of course, that the university sector has some quite significant barriers to access and issues of structural discrimination that really need to be challenged. Uh, So, wow, Friday, the 19th of June, 2020, Education Minister Dan Tian announced some significant proposed changes to undergraduate university fees, um, increasing the cost of humanities degrees by 113 percent, while pushing funding cuts to some science and mathematics degrees as well. Mm -hmm. So. Could you tell us a little bit about this proposal and maybe a bit of the immediate response from the university sector? Well, the response from the university sector has been really varied. For some universities, uh, this will mean really radical cost shifting um, in their their teaching profile. Um, But for other universities, um, maybe some of those in regional areas of Australia, they're looking at this as maybe an opportunity to increase the number of enrolments they have in particular subjects. But the best way to understand this package overall is that it is really a radical structural adjustment to the mix of subjects that universities will offer. So if we think of the funding that the Commonwealth government provides to universities, it it comes in just like a, a, it's a funding envelope, right? And so the amount of money that the Commonwealth government is going to give to universities is not going to change. And that's been a really important plank of the coalition's uh, sale of this package, I guess, is that they're saying that it's cost neutral. 
So what that means is that within that cost neutral uh, funding envelope, what universities have to charge students for different types of degrees is going to really radically change. As you said, really large increases for students who want to do humanities, uh, but also law and commerce and some shifts uh, downwards in the number of places that the government is forecasting that there will be jobs for in the future, agriculture, science, technology, mathematics, those kinds of degrees. Yeah, so I think this is, it's been a bit of a difficult thing to wrap your head around um, the way that the impact is actually not just happening in humanities and social sciences, but there's actually changes across the board. And I think this has pretty big implications um, especially for younger uh, people coming into university or who are hoping to come into university over the next few years compared to perhaps the policy decision makers who might have had access to free tertiary education. Who absolutely had access to free education. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, this package is really is really quite strange in a lot of different ways. And the devil's in the detail. Right? I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people saying that over the past uh week or so. But one of the perverse outcomes that I think will happen as a result of this is that there's actually a really strange incentive for universities to increase the number of arts and humanities students that it enrolls. Firstly, because it's really cheap to teach an arts subject, right? You don't need um, laboratory equipment, you don't need specialised staff to teach a humanities degree, you need a, a passionate lecturer who knows their research and is a relatively decent pedagogue. So one of the things that may happen as a result of these changes is that in order to cover the changing cost base, universities may be incentivized to increase the number of arts and humanities students they enrol because those students are going to be paying a lot more. And so that might offset some of the cost for um, the STEM degrees that, that universities are going to be encouraged to offer. So what this means for students is larger class sizes, less access to their lecturers and, and academics, um, and the implications of that for what it's like to be in an arts and humanities subject inside of a university, and they'll be paying more for the privilege. Yeah, and... I mean, I think this is a really interesting thing to consider alongside sort of current cuts to casual jobs in the sector, um, because this announcement is going to have some flow on repercussions for the nature of work in academia. Um, and especially as we can see sort of across the university sector right now, there are massive concerns about cuts to subjects, cuts to uh, casual work and the overloading of academic staff who are in permanent roles or even in contract roles. Um, so could you touch on some of these concerns, um, perhaps in relation to the nature of teaching and work in humanities and social sciences? Well, if, as we expect to see, uh, larger numbers of students being taught in, in larger classes, then what that means is that alongside the compression and contraction that we're seeing in the industry right now is that there is likely to be the removal of research allocations from teaching staff, I think. And so as universities attempt to enrol students in particular quantities in particular subjects, I guess if that makes sense, 
what that means is that the staff that are being asked to teach those increased enrolments. So let's not forget that this package is going to increase the number of students enrolled in Australian universities by 39,000. And it's going to ask a lot of those students to pay a lot more for that. And so I think that what we are seeing is a shift away from a tertiary sector that does basic research. We're seeing a shift away from teaching income being used to subsidise important and essential research in a whole range of fields, not just in the humanities and social sciences, but we are going to see, I think, staff being asked to do much more teaching, much less research. And I think that raises the question about what it is that we as a society want our universities to do. What purpose do universities serve for us? Yeah, and just very briefly, I was wondering if we could touch on the issue of um, how this might affect student demographics um, over the next few years. I think that there are two really important considerations to think about when we talk about increasing the price of a degree. So I think that um, personally, from my perspective, it's a really tough ask to expect anyone at the age of 17 or 18 to know how they want to spend the investment in their own education. And this is why it's so important to have those broad-based generalist degrees, regardless of the discipline it's in, whether it's social sciences or, or the hard sciences, it doesn't matter. I think that the opportunity to spend three or four years learning widely, um, meeting people from different walks of life, is a really important part of the university experience. But in a, in a very, very practical way, governments are notoriously bad at forecasting where jobs are going to be in the future. They're not very good at it. They don't have a very good track record. And so the government might be able to say, oh, we want more people who have these hard science skills in the future. We want people who can code. We want people with maths degrees. We want all these kinds of people. That's, that's fine. But that's not what employers are saying. Employers are saying that there is a need for people with these hard tech skills into the future, absolutely. But the nature of increased automation in the workforce, the increasing amount of online interaction that we have, the change in the nature of work, the change, the inevitable changes that will happen as a result of the way that the pandemic affects the economy means that we don't just need people who have these hard or pointy skills, if you like. We need people who understand history, who understand how people behave in large groups, who understand what it means to think about the impact of, for example, the recent global Black Lives Matter movement. You know, these are really important social shifts and we need people that can understand them in the historical and contemporary context. Definitely. And um, I'm glad that you brought up Black Lives Matter because I was hoping um, that we could also discuss the um, intersection of this moment in Australian academia with some contemporary concerns about race, so exemplified in the global Black Lives Matter movement, um, particularly with respect to initiatives like the Black and the Ivory hashtag coined by Black American scholars Sade Davis and Joy Melody Woods. Um, this hashtag really took off among Indigenous scholars in Australia. So considering the entrenched structural discrimination against Indigenous academics and students, but also minoritized communities in academia, do you think there's a space in, um, in this conversation we're having now about the nature of academia and what we want from it to deal with some of these concerns um, and a bit of a more expansive transformation? 
there has to be, doesn't there? There just has to be space in our universities to support and engage and work with the diversity of knowledges that exist in the world, not just those which have been extracted and refined and, and legitimated by white Western academic traditions, right? There has got to be a deeper engagement with what this means for black, indigenous, minoritized people around the world. And I think that there are some universities that are really starting to take this seriously. Princeton University changing the name of the Woodrow Wilson School for Public Policy is, you know, a really interesting move in the current climate, you know. And so I think that universities can do a lot of these things. We can change the names of buildings. We can recognise the racist legacies of the past. But there are ways that universities build in structural racism in the content that we teach, in the way that the research has been done in the past, in the kinds of archives that we have, and of course in the way that Black and Indigenous students and staff are treated on campus and, and online, truthfully. Now what happens in the context of these current structural changes that the government is rolling out? There is part of the package which aims to enrol more Indigenous students from regional Australia and to support some, some relocation expenses for students to come to universities. Now, this is another one of these perverse outcomes that I mentioned before. We may well find ourselves in a situation where we can get uh, a slightly increased number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students to university in Australia, but those students then won't do Indigenous studies when they come because it's such a, an expensive proposition to do. So I think that there are ways that these kinds of reforms really solidify opposition to decolonising curriculum. And I think that there is often a lip service paid to increasing Indigenous student enrolments. Or So it is really important to have measures that increase um, access and participation to Australian universities for students who have been minoritised in the past. But what does it mean when we limit those study options that students can do when they get to university? There are still so many questions about whether or not price signals that the government sets have a real impact on student choice. But if you're faced with the choice between a $50,000 degree or a $100,000 degree or a $10,000 degree, you know, when you're a student and, and earning the, the threshold seems a really long way away, you know, maybe those price signals will have an effect. And this is exactly what the government intends. Yeah, it's a stressful time in academia, but I'm really hoping that by opening up spaces for some of these productive discussions and, you know, in, in the wake of bigger structural pushes in Black Lives Matter as well, there's at least a little bit of a way in to start making these more radical transformations. So if listeners want to follow these discussions or find a bit more about your own work, where could they go? Following those hashtags that you mentioned before are really important, um, Black in the Ivory and Black Lives Matter, which I hope all of your listeners are following at the moment. Uh, to find my work, I try to put preprints of all of my articles in front of the paywall on academia.edu. I've got a public profile where people can find, I think, nearly everything I've written, um, hopefully, <laughs> there. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at NikkiMoody underscore, um, and I would... Love to send uh, copies of, of papers or anything that people are interested in if you can't get access to them. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Nikki. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thanks so much, Priya. If you're just tuning in, you're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8 by 5 a.m. You just heard a conversation between myself and Dr. Nikki Moody, who's a Gomorrah Scholar at the University of Melbourne, about recent blows to the university sector during the COVID-19 pandemic and ways that we might move forward. All right, so let's head into a new track by a young emerging hip-hop artist out of Aotearoa. Um, this one is Hard Case by Hoodsy. Something like a funeral every day for the body, some crosses. Something like a funeral every day for the body, some crosses. See, I ain't acting Something like you got it, like you a broke man. You're posting all over the ground like a joke man. If I gave you some of food, you would choke man. I don't miss with coke man, I'm pure water. I just shunned the window after kicking with your daughter. Then I heard you screaming, baby, that's not what I torture. Then never miss with hoodie, don't you dare even support us. See, I'm a hard case. Mixed with a hard taste If I lie what I see Better know I hit the race I'm a whole different pace Running circles run a dog I could never care About a gang and a grunk But you can get lost And hit it with a left right Left right Saying that you love me It's too left right You never know which way to go Is it left right Left right I told you put the box To the left right Just like young Say with a mouth full of liquor If you know Then you know You can find me on wicker The man was lying When he said he wasn't with her Don't worry baby Go give a punch to his liver I be fingers on the Twitter all these birdies at the church Saying that they're working But we're never putting work If you're trying to come my way I don't want to see you twerk It's this time you turn around If you're really trying to flirt I ain't acting like you got it You a broke man You're posting all over the gram Like a joke man If I gave you some of my food You would choke man I leave you dripping Stop you wild like a coke can Baby let's go Let's go till I D.I.E. I want a QG in the bears Like I'm B.I.G. I start digging up your grades Give me R.I.P. I put you up for doing nothing Like a P.I.G. What you see I see But I'm moving Correct. I'm flooding out the whole scene, have it up to your neck You ain't no point in trying to swim, just go pray for the best You ain't a digger or a soldier, you a bluff at the rest You say you're whipping and you're jumping in a bando mm, So how you gonna banzo? You say you're digging and you're spraying like you're Rambo But who you gonna Rambo? Tell you who's bad though I'm moving threes and shit, you're acting like you're from the States on bees and shit And I ain't mean to this, yeah I'm just stating the facts I twist and twist till it breaks the back And then I dip and whip till I'm making it back Like you got it, you a broke man. You're posting all over the gram like a joke man. If I gave you some of my food, you would choke man. I leave you dripping, stop you wild like a coke can. Baby, let's go. And just then we heard Hard Case by Hoodsy. You're listening to 3CR 855am. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 
3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 855am. Next up, we'll hear part of Writing Black, an event presented online by the Wheeler Centre in partnership with the Emerging Writers Festival last Thursday. Hosted by Evelyn Araluen, four emerging First Nations writers from the Next Chapter Writers Scheme, Jasmine McGaughy, Rachel Oak Butler, Lorna Munro and Malaika Gessa Fatafehi discuss the creative process, writing for black and settler readerships and how they respond to expectations of genre, character and identity. Uh, Jingiwala, thank you for joining us. Uh, today we are meeting on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang peoples of the Kulin Nations. Before we begin anything, I would like to pay my respect to their ancestors, to their custodians and for the care that they have given to this country since time immemorial and for the custodianship that they continue to share across these lands, across the many linked Kulin Nations and extending that to all of the visitors who have come here. Uh, we must remember as we conduct any form of business that it is Wurundjeri, Boon cool and sovereignty that we are walking upon, uh, that they are the caretakers of this land, that it is their sovereignty that guides this place and that we are only visitors here and as such we must be responsible to their leadership and to their guardianship over this place. My name is Evelyn Araluen. I am a poet, an editor, a Bundjalung woman uh, who grew up in the Darug Nation of Western Sydney and is now living here in Wurundjeri country. First Nations writers are at the forefront of some of the most exciting writing that is being produced in this continent today, subverting creative forms and decolonising Australian literature. Four emerging First Nations writers from the next chapter scheme, Jasmine McGacky, Rachel Oak Butler, Lorna Munro, Malaika Gessa Fatafehi discuss the creative process, writing for black and settler readerships, and how they respond to expectations of genre, character, and identity. And also why they are all so incredibly deadly. So, first off, uh, we'll be hearing from Lorna Munro, or Yulini, who is a Wiradjuri and Gamilaroi woman, a multidisciplinary artist and regular radio and podcast host at Sydney radio, Sydney's Radio Skid Row. Uh, she's a long-time active member of her Redfern Waterloo community. Her work is informed by her passion and well-studied insights in areas such as culture, history, politics and popular culture. Lorna has travelled the world showcasing her skills and distinctive style of poetry and political commentary. She was also the sole designer and creator of Sydney's and possibly Australia's first initiative to teach Aboriginal language through poetry in partnership with Red Room Poetry Company in 2015. Throughout her career, she has been on stage, in films and on paper, compiling and editing Paper Dreaming, Our Stories, Our Way. Lorna continues to work tirelessly and masters many art forms. She raises funds, supports and advocates for her community and her people on local, national and international stage. She's currently being mentored by the wonderful Romaine Morton's part of the Next Chapter scheme and is all round just an incredible performer and artist and it is incredibly exciting for me to be able to introduce you to Lorna. So to kick us off, uh, Lorna, could you tell us whose country you're speaking from today and then introduce us a little bit to your practice and what are you working on as a part of the next chapter? 
Um, thanks for that deadly introduction and that acknowledgement as well. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of thought put into that acknowledgement. So I'm speaking on Gadigal country at the moment. Um, the, I guess to describe my practice is really kind of, um, it's really uh, pushed by black methodologies. It's really pushed by indigenous methodologies. It's really pushed by um, community and influenced by community and influenced by kinship and family um, all the time. And then I guess, you know, it's a lot of my work and my practice is really influenced um, from um, the act of reclaiming history, the act of reclaiming our history, our stories, our identity, um, and counteracting the way that our people and our stories have been recorded within the colonial project. It's really amazing. Um, what forms have you been working across in this in this practice? Um, the I guess that the forms that I'm probably more confident or enjoy or more passionate about working um, within and have really kind of enjoyed creating uh, um, the processes around that has been uh, poetry, you know, podcasting, um, uh, radio broadcasting. I've been involved in radio since I was like 15. I'm really interested in sound design. I'm really interested in sound engineering. I'm really interested in um, storytelling and that, uh, you know, that, that, part of the decolonial process when we reclaim that information and when we take it back and, um, you know, kind of really immerse yourself in, um, in you know, stuff that you can't quite substantially mm. touch and feel mm. and things like that. Mm. Um you know, I've done a lot of acting, um, not so much recently. Um, I feel like I'm always complaining about the reasons why I'm not in those spaces anymore. Um, I've done set design, um, you know, for theatre productions in the past. I've um, done a, a lot of, like, film sort of stuff. Um, you know, the stuff that I really enjoyed, I guess, um, and a little shout out to my brother Eric Avery is the, you know, work that we did um, together as Poetry Tribe, um, working with compositions and decolonising compositions and poetry. I thought it was really interesting for two young black fellas, you know, from New South Wales. It's supposedly a place where culture doesn't exist, Aboriginal culture doesn't exist, um, you know, to be able to really master white forms of art and um, put that on a stage. I think that, you know, if you were to look up some of the work that I've done, I think my process has really come across within those forms. Yeah, that it absolutely has. And, like, I've had the privilege of seeing you work with Eric and I've had the privilege of seeing you perform in so many different spaces. And, yeah, it's uh, it's really phenomenal and really impactful. So uh, thank you for introducing and sharing a little bit of that practice. Um, so next, proudly Gamilaroi, Rachel Oak Butler is a writer, performer, musician and self-defence teacher. 
Rachel has been writing for many years and has amassed a significant body of work, including poetry, short stories, songs, performance and spoken word pieces. Rachel toured a spoken word piece, My Calling, as a part of the Queer Stories performances throughout Victoria and New South Wales, and has also worked with Ilbajeri Theatre Company and as a, as a performer in Scar Trees. Writing is fundamental to who Rachel is, and although the message is sometimes raw and traumatic, it is also unique, powerful and truthful, and goes to the heart of many key issues and experiences. And Rachel is being mentored by Michelle Fracaro as a part of the Next Chapter scheme. So, Rachel, where are you, uh, whose country are you speaking to us from today, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about your practice and what you're working on as a part of Next Chapter? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm sitting on kind of the border of Dutarawa and Wiradjuri country um, and also Bangarang mob kind of come in there too. Um, yeah, so my what I'm working on in regards to the next chapter is uh, a bunch of like short stories that amalgamate into a story, like a, a whole story. Um, that chop and change in, in, I suppose, um, style. Um, and there was a point that Lorna made just before about reclaiming um, culture and space, and and I think that's part of what I'm trying to show in the work that I'm writing about at the moment. Uh, next up is Jasmine. Uh, Jasmine Goggi is a Torres Strait Islander from the Kukagal Nation and an African-American writer. She has completed her undergraduate degree in psychology and justice in 2016, but quickly realised that her love was writing. She recently finished her Masters of Writing, Editing and Publishing through the University of Queensland. Currently, she works at Black and Write as an editor intern at the State Library of Queensland. Jasmine's passions have always been reading and writing, and she's proud to be able to work and learn in this field with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander literature. Uh, Jasmine is being mentored by the wonderful writer-novelist Melissa Lukashenko, and uh, she's also been doing a lot of really exciting work around um, commissioning and editing with uh, Kill Your Darlings, which I think also deserves a little bit of a shout-out there. So, uh, Jasmine, whose country are you speaking to us from today? And uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about your practice and what you're working on as a part of Next Chapter? Yeah, I'm on um, Yarra and Turubu, um country here in Brisbane, um, and I'm working... Um, on a YA novel um, with Lanty Melissa, and it's 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 been really good. I've always loved reading YA, um, and I really wanted to see a YA book with a Torres Strait Islander character, um, something that I could have related to as a young person, and um, my sisters and cousins can hopefully relate to. That's what I what I keep in mind as I write. Beautiful. And as an editor as well, I know that's not necessarily a part of what you're working with in the next chapter, but that seems to be, you know, you seem to be absolutely smashing it in, in editing. How do you sort of feel about that kind of coming out alongside your own creative practice? Yeah, um, it's, I've learned so much from Black and White um, about editing, but also about writing. So I feel like they've really complemented one another. And I don't think 
I wouldn't have submitted to the next chapter if it hadn't been for my internship at Black and Right. And um, I definitely wouldn't have the confidence to have written a Torres Strait Islander YA novel um, if it hadn't been for learning about how um, how important our stories are from from Black and Right. And with the Kill Your Darlings um, opportunity, it's been a lot of fun and it's been a learning curve learning to edit short pieces. Um, but I've had a lot of fun reading the submissions. There's just so much so much good writing out there from our people that I wish I could give it all publishing opportunities. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, hopefully one day you will be able to we'll just endlessly flood the market. Um, beautiful. Thank you, Jasmine. Uh, next, last but definitely not least, is Malika Gessa Fatafehi, uh, who is pretty hilarious and laughs too much, so much that her black, indigenous and Pacifica ancestors are probably tired of her. I don't think they are. <laughs> Lucky she alternates burdening the two sides of her ancestry who are from Mare, Murray Island, from the Zagreb and Daureb tribes and Fahifa Tonga. Malaika is also a literature and film critic. She loves talking about all things nerdy, rapping and creating, as well as decolonizing spaces online and in real life. She is a storyteller that takes many forms, the most prominent a poet. If she's upset any of her ancestors while making this bio, she is sorry. And she's being edited. I think you're the only person in the scheme who's being edited uh, or being mentored by two writers, by Ellen Van Nieven and Tusiato Viva. So... That's mm. a lot of responsibility they have given you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is. Can you tell us whose country you're speaking to us from today and tell us a little bit about your practice and what you're working on as a part of Next Chapter? Um, so, hey, everyone. Um, just like Jasmine, I am on Yagar and Turrbal country. Um, if someone asked me what am I doing um, writing-wise, I would tell you, I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm just doing my best. Um, no, uh, I, so I, I had no idea that I was a poet until someone called me a poet. So basically, this whole time I've been storytelling and the way that I've been storytelling, um, it's kind of, it's it's an experience, um, and a lot of people fit that underneath poetry, um, which is why I call myself a poet, and I do a lot of spoken word. But I feel like blackfellas have always been doing the work that I feel more comfortable being called a storyteller because it's just like that's who we are. Um, I've always worked with um, fiction. Um, I've always been writing, always been talking. Shame job, no. Um, but yeah, I have just always loved the art of expressing myself, but also um, reflecting. And I feel like that's that reflecting is always um, intertwined in my storytelling because I you, you don't get to reflect when you're younger. Um, and when you get older, you look back and you're like, oh, shame. Um, but it's 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 a it's a it's a good feeling to like finally have the vocabulary to um express yourself because a lot of times when you're young uh you don't you don't have that um the words um you know the feeling but you can't really describe it um and you try your best to and i think that's what i do with my writing most of the time You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55 a.m. 
That was part one of Writing Black, an event presented online by the Wheeler Centre in partnership with the Emergent Writers Festival last Thursday. We'll jump back into the discussion, hearing from four First Nations emerging writers as each writer talks to their experience of the arts industry. So this fellowship was developed out of a recognition of a lot of the harm and the limitation and the misappropriation that has come out of the arts, particularly in recent years as emerging writers have tried to find their place. Um, would you mind telling us a little about, a bit about what your experiences in the industry have been so far? And we might circle back and start with you, Lorna. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know where to start with that, really. Um, you know, I I come from a community that's actively being gentrified. Um, you know, I come from a community that is known as the black heart of the rest of the country. What I was saying was trying to explain um, how difficult it has been for someone like myself who... Um, is still living in a place that's being actively gentrified is um you know growing up in a in in uh a, a community um an urban aboriginal community right in the middle of the sydney the oldest city in this country sydney um you know that we call the birthplace of self determination um in this country with the establishment of the first community controlled organizations um first walk through medical centers you know a lot of these ideas were taken from black panthers and from the indigenous um you know native american and canadian movements and stuff like that that were happening um off the back of the civil rights movements and stuff like that um to just kind of paint how many barriers have been placed on top of my voice, how many buffers have been placed um, on top of um, that. Um, you know, I come from a, a, a really large politically known family. Um, you know, a lot of the time in the black consciousness of this country, I find my role today um, as an educator trying to educate other people, other younger people that are um, becoming active, uh, becoming vocal about the situation that we face and kind of always trying to kind of give people the context for the way that things are today. Um, because the way that we kind of frame and the way that I frame my work and the way that I frame this community is that, you know, I live in a community that's being dispossessed. I'm living in a community that's being actively gentrified. It's the same community that was allowed to recreate itself and build itself up from, um, you know, the previous generation's works uh, with the Black Power movements here in this country with... Um, you know, the community-controlled organisations with um, a lot of uh, writing policy, I guess, and, and really advocating for um, a blackfella methodology to be really taken into account in many various different industries and, and ways of working um, that a lot of people aren't aware of um, today. Um, you know, so so say, for example, you know, when I was going to uni, um, 
and I don't want to bag anyone out, but I just kind of am trying to paint the picture of of how excluded I have been based on who I am, who my family is, where my bloodlines come from, and where I've grown up. Um, you know, they're all very um, stigmatized sort of um, context. So the best way that I can kind of explain this is that, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't really experience racism until I was about 12 when I first left this community. Um, you know, I was aware that it existed. I was aware of police brutality. I was really aware of racial violence and that sort of stuff, but I hadn't actually experienced racism myself. Um, and the, one of the things that I noticed was like going to a Crocker Stedford um, when we were very young, and it was probably one of the first times that our school was allowed to participate in those sort of things. So, again, the schools that I went to were also excluded from any kind of activities from the rest of Sydney because it was full of black kids. Um, so when we did finally get to go to those spaces, I remember a few things like happened, like other kids from other schools had stuff taken from their bags and our bus being stopped and searched. And, like, there was hundreds of, like, schools from all over Sydney, you know. And then when I'd gotten to um, university and I started going to uni games and meeting other black fellows from other universities and stuff like that, there were similar microaggressions. So I found it really interesting that in white spaces being black, everybody kind of looked at me when something was stolen or something was not quite right. And then in black spaces, because my family come from Maury and Redfern, I was also that person, black spaces, um... So, you know, just to kind of, I know I'm given a long-winded kind of explanation, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money that's been invested to make sure that people like me do not have a voice in these industries because we often undermine it. The fact that we exist and the fact that we hold so much knowledge undermines the bureaucracy that exists in a lot of these industries and a lot of these areas um, that say that they represent us, um, but you know, want to exclude people that live in community and that are that have always been black. Um, you know, oftentimes because the message isn't palatable, because our existence is resistance. Our existence reminds everybody that you know we've survived genocide. Um, we've survived every policy that has been placed on us. Um, we've survived generations and generations of white supremacy. Um, so, you know, I, I think that I think that I have a especially kind of interesting um, barriers to break through um, in getting to this point. Um, yeah, I just think it's really interesting that a lot of money has actually been invested and a lot of resources have actually been invested to make sure that um, artists, people like myself that are working, um, representing this community, aren't actually allowed to make work about this community in this community. Mm. So there's a lot of censorship happening, I guess. Mm. And you've worked really hard to try to confront that as much as possible in your practice as well with a number of different 
projects and, you know, survival guide, um, which is, I think, probably one of the most powerful examples where you're also interviewing, you know, you're interviewing this community and you're making sure that stories that otherwise wouldn't get told or wouldn't be documented or that bureaucracy you're talking about would want to, like, conceal from the narrative of Sydney. You know, you're working really hard to document that. So it seems like that hostility has also been something that you've been, you know, consistently trying to, like, keep in check or trying to call out as a part of your practice, which I imagine must be exhausting as well, that constant need to react and be reactive in your in your work and your responses. I think it's an obligation when you have a platform to be actually be able to speak on things that you, you know are difficult for other people or that you know that, you know, it's, it becomes a cultural obligation. Like once you know, once you have the skills, once you've had the mentorship of your elders and have been pushed up to the microphone, you often, you know, it's a bit disrespectful for you to then say, oh, well, I'm too ashamed to say something or, you know, um, I can't. I can't talk on that, um, you know. So with the strength of my elders and ancestors and that mentorship and, and, and being, um, you know, nurtured and guided by this country's best black thinkers and speakers, what else was I going to do with that, you know? Um, there's no good of me just sitting with that. People need to know about it. People need to know... You know, things like the flag um, being upside down. You know, everyone wants to start kind of campaigns to turn the flag upside down now with the red on top to kind of signify a nation in distress when they don't know we have been living in distress. <laughs> Generations have been born in distress, mm. you know, because the flag was designed with the red on top by Harold Thomas. It was turned upside down at the 10 Embassy. Um, mm. You know, not many people know that. There's a lot of misinformation that's out there about the black consciousness um, and about, you know, the way that we talk about the evolution and the birthing of the black consciousness in this country. Mm. Absolutely. No, thank you. Uh, Rachel, what are, some of you, what are some of the things that are exciting you right now about black writing, black arts industries, you know, this shift in autonomy and the taking of power back by black creatives right now? I think just first and foremost, if we were all sitting in a room right now, I'd, I'd um, point to all of you. Um, absolutely. Every time you all say something, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, in my head. Yeah, and that. And just underline that, everyone. Just repeat it and listen. I'm just like, yeah, what she think? What she think? Um, in regards to current work at the moment, I'm quite um, in rural town and technology is not my friend. So in regards to, like, specifically right this current moment, I'm kind of out of the loop. Um Bar being like you know connected to people like you and listening to your words and your work and and your experiences um yeah, I think to kind of second what yeah bits and pieces of what all of you have said throughout answering any of the questions is like the very foundations of this country and its society is entrenched in oppression and segregation and 
just, yeah, oppression. I'll say that. Um, and so, and that continues and people are completely blind to it because it's so entrenched in the foundations that people just have no idea. Um, you know, so like as a, as a performer, um, working in any kind of way, um, with white organisations, um, they will literally ring you up to double check, triple check that you're going to turn up for the allotted agreed time slash meeting slash performance. They will double, triple check and white explain what an ABN is and that you need to put it on your invoice and, like, it's just... And then you point that out, hey, you know, I got an ABN, yes, you don't have to ask me four times, um, and I got it 20 years ago because I was performing 20 years ago and you needed it when the GST came in. Um, and then having that explained to you back at you, like, it's just, it's insane. Like, it's and, and Black Hawks, you know, yeah, and Black Hawks don't ring you up and ensure that you're going to, Turn up because they bloody know you are because you've agreed with it because you've had a conversation. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So I, I think, um, and that was a, a weird tangent. Sorry, but just no, like as about like trust, right? It's about it's about how you're trusted in these organisations and you're giving something to them, and they're not. They're just treating you as if you're unreliable or you're like outside of their order and outside of their expected sort of infrastructure of how they do things. So, like, it's totally – it is totally a huge issue to be working and, you know, to be a professional. Like, as you said, you've been performing for 20 years, but to not be treated like a professional, to be treated like you still – you you know, you don't know what you're doing. It's really dehumanising and it's a big problem, I think, in the way that a lot of these organisations do treat blackfellas as if they're doing you a favour you know, and they need to explain all of the terms and conditions because maybe, maybe you've never seen a form like this before. It's so it's really a demoralising yeah. problem. Yeah, and I think like in regards to the points made about you know having your your voice edited or um, whitewashed. Um, yeah, in regards to live performance as opposed to written pieces. When performing live, they can't be edited. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that that is, you know, um, yeah, you can't, you can't change what I'm saying right now on the microphone. You're going to have to listen to it and sit in that unco- uncomfortable space. Um, and it's no longer bloody tokenistic because you can't actually, I'm going to say all these things as a live performance as, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, instead of having to fight or justify or explain your written word, um, yeah. Jasmine, would you like to tell us a little bit about your experience in, in the industry, you know, whether that's like an editing space, you know, or that's part of your own creative practice? How's your experience been so far? Um, I feel like I haven't been in the industry all that long. I only started studying 
um, in 2017, 18, and actively trying to to write and get people to read what I wrote. Um, but I have always been writing, you know, since I was small, since my mum, you know, made books with me to, um, when I was little. But I, so I think my experience has been seeing the shift in myself and my own writing and how I didn't think that people like me could be in books that publishers would want that, that, that people would buy that um, and how I bought into that myself. And so, you know, the stories that maybe I related to a little bit, I didn't write them or I didn't show them to people. And, you know, through study, through black and white, through just being in this space and surrounded by good people, um, which I've been lucky enough to be, um, in spaces like that, I, I've seen that, of course, people want to read, read about a Torres Strait Islander young person, or of course, you know, people want to write. You know, there, there are a lot of Torres Strait Islander, I think, storytellers who, whose stories are important and they want to tell them. And, um, it's, it's nice to see that, that I believe that now. And yeah. That's really beautiful. And you're also working to create more opportunities now in that space too, you know, as an editor, a curator. Like I see you out there, you know, really working so hard to bring black voices into these spaces, which is just like so fantastic when you yourself, you know, you're emerging. And I think it's kind of like that idea of, you know, like we got to give as much as we take. And it's just so lovely to see, you know, someone like, you know, as young as you just sharing that out even as you build yourself. It's really amazing. So, Malika, would you like to tell us a little bit about your experience in the industry so far and, you know, how you've kind of come into this space? And, you know, I know you've had challenges as well working with editors and working with different publications and such and just really being able to make sure that you're able to preserve and defend your own voice. Um, How has it been for you kind of, you know, charging forward with that? Mm. So I think I should start at the beginning now, Gammon. Um, I, I, I wasn't even introduced into the industry until, like, I was 18. Um, when I was 14, um, I, I thought I was real deadly. Um, uh, I, I mean, I still am. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> um, but I... Uh, I decided to start like reviewing um, books. Um, I have no idea why I started doing it, but it was something that brought me um, a lot of joy because I think when you're when you're a young fella, you you search for yourself in books. So I was there desperately searching for myself from 14 to 17. Um, I I would blog and I would review books um, and then throughout those years, um, publishers and authors started reading my reviews and then they would send me books and I was like, yeah, stop. Um, my mom's proper angry at me. No. Um, but it, it was this, that's how I got introduced into, um, the publishing industry because 14 year old me was just reading and reviewing and publishing it. Um, and then when I was 18, I realized that I wanted to start writing the literature that everyone wanted to review. I wanted to be the one giving out books to kids. I I wanted to have my own work reviewed or just have my own work 
um, for another blackfellow who was searching desperately at, at I was 14, desperately for um, representation. And it all started from there. And then I just picked up everything that I had and um, started writing poetry. And then in 2018, um, I did my very first performance um, in Newcastle um, at the National Young Writers Festival. Uh, and then ever since then, I've been picking up performances here and there. However, there have been so many, um, so many uh, barriers uh, throughout this whole journey. Because you gotta, you gotta think that one, um, English and I have a complicated relationship. Um, I don't like it. Um, when when I was growing up, I I didn't really like English. Um, I, I had good grades, sure, but if you told me to go read Shakespeare, I'd tell you to do something silly. No. Um, but, yeah, I had a very – I didn't like English. Um, I got kicked out of my English class in grade 10 and um, – uh, grade 11, I think, actually. No, it was grade 10. I got kicked out um, because my teacher thought I was talking. I was not. Um, but she was there angry at me. I had to go to a different English class. Um and I stayed in that English class, and that teacher, she she would give me books to read. Like I think that's where my love of reading got was it it was sparked again because when you're in high school you don't have time to read. Um, but at that time I just my joy for reading um, was sparked again. But there are so many you have people who don't think you're enough to be doing the work that you do. You have people who think that your opinions about the how you view the world is either, um, like, like, is that how you live? Like, they, they feel like that's not real. And it's just like, yeah, police be killing us. Like, what do you mean if that's not how we live? Like, you get racially profiled all the time. I tell people, I remember this conversation I had at uni. Um, I was like, hey, how, how was your... Um, your in-school police officer, like, was he racist too? And he was like, what do you mean, in-school police officer? We didn't have one of those. I was like, are you sure? Like, well, Alan was a, a bit big dory, yeah. Like, he was a bit, he was a racist. Um, but I, I grew up with people assuming that I wasn't smart enough, with people assuming, um, just because I didn't like English that I wasn't capable of doing what I do now. Um, I also have people always trying to change my opinions. Now, like now that I'm writing um, pop culture articles and um, critical, just critiques on uh, film and just TV shows in general as well, just media actually. I have people wanting to. I have editors that. I have editors always wanting to change my words and I, I recently had this editor who changed my words into suggesting that the systems that are in place right now in Australia will work for us one day. When I when I specifically write that the systems in Australia that are that are right conducting right now, that are working right now, have been built that way. Because that's how they want us it's built to oppress us and they should all be abolished and she there 
changed it to make me seem doogie, um, <laughs> um, Gavin, and think that I was for um, reform. Um, sis, no. Nah, done. You know my sis. But at the end of the day, <laughs> it's it's this whole, like, there's so many things that I want to talk about from people assuming um, you're dumb, you're, you're not enough, that because English is your second language, you won't understand things from people um, not being able to cater for you or your disability. Um, there's people who will just change your opinions, who will try to enforce their opinion on you so it influences your writing. Or when you write a short piece, a short story or um, any type of writing, you'll have editors saying, oh, I don't really understand this. And you're just like, um, how come you can't understand? Like, that's how I read it. <laughs> um, it's the way that we storytell, non-black editors will have no idea how to work with it. Like, they, they, it's out of their ball game. Like, they're not even, I like to call it, um, what do you call it? They're not even on the court. They're in the audience watching us play. They're, they're too gammon to join us. Like, we're there playing with ourselves because we know how to win this game. They don't. But you know what a what a testament though to like that misunderstanding of approach that you know Mm. you were getting kicked out of class because your teachers looking at you with this (laughs) expectation that like you have to be you're you're talking too much you know you might not Mm. have even opened your mouth but we know how these attitudes build up you know (laughs) and yet you know just like the amount of power that can come from someone going like stepping in and intervening for a moment and going you know what hey like we don't need to punish this kid we need to give them book you're on 3cr 855 am that was part two of writing black um, our excerpt of an event presented online by the wheeler center in partnership with emerging writers festival last thursday for more information and the full audio of the event you can go to www.wheelercenter.com forward slash broadcasts, forward slash writing black. Um, and we'll include links to all of the artists in our show notes. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. All right, so this one is a newly released track um, by a fella up in Munjun, Brisbane. And this one is Gemini by Sashim. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, matter of fact, all the beautiful people of this world, I'd like to welcome you on a journey where pain meets pleasure and pleasure meets pain. Aha, that's life, right? A journey where things are so real that they might seem unbelievable. But trust me, this is real as it gets. And if you open your mind, open your soul, you might just find your truth. So sit back, put your feet up, and enjoy this ride. It's my life, baby. Get a breath. Uh, to my mind, so I see the truth. I'm searching for a deeper meaning hidden in my roots. Asking questions like, will I be alright? And where the fuck do we go when we sleep at night? Many questions asked, many mental scars, a lot of trauma, and it's sitting on my sacred heart. Man, what do I do? Where do I go? All I know, I gotta breathe, I gotta take it slow. I gotta meditate, let my spirit flow. I gotta elevate, even when I'm feeling low. Even when I'm feeling down and out, I found a route. I counts with a large amount. Without a doubt, you find the debt. I found my heart, you bounce the check. I push to start, I push for more. And even scores and even more. I come for your neck, now you ain't breathing no more. I be overseas, honey, please, I grow more. The scenes that I've seen, honey, people die for. 
strive for I'm a chief, cut the fine cord It's like these nights are getting colder My eyes are getting older I'm seeing people different Cause I be looking closer Search between the cracks of lines Search between the lyrics So I see if I can find The real reason why I've been feeling this way And I see the light coming close each day And my brother is just bright Everything will be alright If you can't see all the signs I would advise you to pray Cause they speak in my dreams Yes, they're speaking to me They call me that they go Because they know what I see And we haven't for long And so I'm writing this song To all my brothers out there Not rewriting their wrongs It's on I said I see overseas Honey, please, I grow more The scenes that I've seen Honey, people die for Believe in a dream I achieve I strive for Sashim is a chief Honey, cut the fine cord I be overseas Honey, please, I grow more The scenes that I've seen Honey, people die for Believe in a dream I achieve I strive for I'm a chief Cut the fine cord Just then, we heard Gemini, a new one from Sashim. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am on your dial, or streaming live at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. It's the 2nd of July, and up next, I chat with Ravi Marinas, current secretary of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, otherwise known as PADSA. Ravi is also research fellow at Melbourne Law School and principal lawyer at Advocate Solicitors and Barristers. Ravi speaks with me today about recent proposed amendments to the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation Amendment Bill. The second part of our conversation, which was around impacts of COVID-19 on international students, particularly Filipino students, will be broadcasting next week. So stay tuned for that. But up next, here's my conversation with Ravi from PASA about the proposed changes to the ASIO Bill. Thanks so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast, Ravi. So, listeners might be aware that changes to the national security laws governing ASIO's powers to question terrorism suspects were introduced into Parliament on the 13th of May this year. Could you give us an overview of the proposed amendments? Thanks for that, Max. Um, There are several parts of the bill that needs careful analysis and consideration. And I think um, with that, um, you know, we need a wide debate within the community um, in regards to the ASIO bill, it seems to me that the government is rushing this bill for the sake of expanding its intelligence gathering power to undermine the importance of our democracy in this country. One worrying bit of the bill is, as you know, is its ability to issue questioning warrants when it comes to minors as young as 14 years old. It is worrying because it lowers down the minimum age from 16 years of age to just 14 years of age. This is also problematic because there is no absolute guarantee that the Attorney General, um, who would have the sole power to issue a warrant once the bill is passed, will uphold the best interest of the child in a given circumstance. So we have no guarantee with that. The other, the other worrying bit in this, in this particular aspect is that Australia as the signatory 
to the Convention of the Rights of the Child would be breaching its international human rights obligation as far as the rights of the child is concerned. The fact that children are in the most vulnerable position in this case would certainly raise some serious question about the ACO's power to intervene for the sake of intelligence gathering. I think the second important part of the uh, the bill that needs to be scrutinized is the so-called streamlining or the expediting process for requesting a question, uh, questioning warrant by empowering the Attorney General alone to issue this warrants orally, which means to say that um, it does not have to be put in writing with all the relevant facts and materials of the warrant, which effectively removes the role of the issuing authority, which in the current legislation played by the role of a judge. This would mean that the bill will no longer require um, the role of an independent and impartial issuing authority. This is problematic because it basically also removes transparency accountability and independence of a judicially appointed person to oversee the proper implementation of this process. By doing so orally, in person or by phone, it is very futile in itself because an absence of any written record of an application undermines the ability to make a decision based on clear written evidences upon which the issue of a warrant is authorized. The third most concerning aspect of the bill is that the questioning warrant goes beyond the usual concern about terrorism, but now it includes the activities of espionage, politically motivated violence, which may include terrorism um, itself, and acts of foreign interference. The definition of politically motivated violence is so broad that it goes beyond terrorism offenses under the federal criminal code. It is important to note that advocacy, dissent, and protests that does not likely to endanger the safety of the public or cause serious harm are exempted, actually exempted in the definition of terrorist act in the criminal code. Now, the definition of politically motivated violence is so wide that it may encompass, and I quote from the, from the bill, any acts or threats of violence or unlawful harm that are intended or likely to achieve a political objective, whether in Australia or elsewhere, including acts or threats carried on for the purpose of influencing the policy or acts of government, whether in Australia or elsewhere. Now, this is very troubling because there is a huge risk of abuse of power for political purpose, especially that it is the Attorney General, a member of the executive arm of the government who is solely making the decision. Now, the final concern that, are, that we, we see um, in relation to this bill is the use of surveillance devices, which actually infringe on the privacy and civil liberties of the people. The provisions of the bill effectively remove the issue of warrant when it comes to tracking devices, which is normally issued by the Attorney General. Now, the ICO itself can internally issue authorization of surveillance devices. I think that an independent authorization, such as the role of the judge, should provide the best safeguard for the right of the individual to privacy and to eliminate any form of misuse of power in the hands of the executive. So that's basically the, the four uh, broad um, proposal to the amendment to the, um, the current legislation that's, that we are really worried about. 
Why do the proposed changes, which significantly increase ASIO's powers, pose such a dangerous threat to democratic rights? Uh, a greatest concern is actually the impact of these changes to the democratic rights of the, the people, especially the people's right to assembly and to express their political opinion. Uh, we are aware that human rights activists and defenders would become the target of intense surveillance because of their belief or the group's political standing on a particular issue. I think that this proposed legislation really goes beyond what is re reasonably and appropriately um, adapted to gather intelligence and defeat extreme violence and terrorism at the expense of the democratic and human rights of the people. The Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, or PASA, has recently put out a statement expressing concern with the legislation. What are some of PASA's concerns, and in particular, do you have any specific concerns regarding Filipino activists or other community advocacy groups in so-called Australia? Um, yes, yes, most certainly. Um, it is particularly worrying for ethnic community organisations, um, and especially for overseas Filipino activists, because we are not only dealing with the ICO's ex extraordinary powers to question people in Australia, but also in the Philippines. They were also rushing an anti-terror bill that surely impedes on the people's right to voice out their concern against a very, very repressive authoritarian regime in the Philippines. And mind you, these two bills right, in Australia and also in the Philippines have an extraterritorial jurisdiction when it comes to its application to individuals and groups. So I think regardless of your nationality or your immigration status in Australia, these proposed laws do not distinguish you from anyone else. And you may be subject you know, to this expanding use of surveillance, intimidation, and undemocratic encroachment to the basic political and civil rights of the ordinary people in Australia, and particularly the activists too. So, given that the bill, so this, this bill that we're talking about, it was introduced in the middle of May to a half-empty chamber in Parliament in the middle of a global pandemic. What do you make of this timing? Do you think that this is just the latest power grab slipped in there while there's actually limited capacity for scrutiny and everyone was distracted by the COVID-19 public health emergency? Yes, yes, that's actually a very interesting uh, question because, you know, in terms of the timing of the introduction of this very, you know, draconian law, you know, where the public sphere is currently curtailed by emergency power, um, you know, to, uh, um, you know, to silence the people's right to assembly, to participate in a, me in a meaningful debate in the community. I, I think, you know, it was deliberate and and it was intended and designed that this legislation um you know can slip through the eyes of the public with less scrutiny and debate and therefore really undermines the political participation of people to criticize you know with the dangerous feature of this type of legislation i think it is it is um uh, very deliberate and um i think the government um is capitalizing and, and um, exploiting that, that um, you know, our, our current situation.
to zoom out and talk about the, the broader context for a moment, since 9-11, we've seen a steady expansion of the powers of the security state in so-called Australia. Do you feel that folks have become overly complacent about the idea of intelligence agencies operating in secret, being able to exercise incredibly coercive powers with respect to people who aren't even suspected of alleged terrorism? Uh, yes. I think to some extent we have become somehow complacent, you know, with the increasing power of the state to introduce emergency or exceptional powers to um, curtail people's rights. Particularly, I would imagine that we tend to forget, you know, these important issues because of our, you know, obviously our work commitment, our insecurities nowadays, our overly so-called consumer society. This is the grandest sign of, you know, a neoliberal capitalist system such as Australia that the state, with the help of the legal system, the bureaucracy and its political system to maintain the status quo and to per perpetuate the ever-increasing political and economic crisis that the current system, you know, cannot hold to exist. And, you know, this is not just only happening in Australia, it's also happening around the world. What is the Philippine-Australia Solidarity Association calling for instead of this legislation as it currently stands? I think PASA, you know, doesn't support this legislation at all. If, if there may be one particular good thing about the, the legislation is the removal of the so-called um, questioning and detain, detaining um, power of of the of the legislature so they removed the, the detaining part of it you know where uh suspected um individuals can be detained um indefinitely so that is a welcome from from um uh from academics and also from um community groups but i think um in the whole uh past of this and support is in fact the government should retract this unjust uh, and very oppressive legislation because this does not do any good to the lives of the ordinary people in this country. Um, I think what the government should be focusing on is to improve the lives of um, ordinary Australians, um, not legislating to, you know, um, expand the power of the government to intimidate and to, um, you know, to curtail the democratic participation of the people in this country. To wrap up, Ravi, how can listeners support and find out more about PASA and all the great work you do? Well, PASA's got a Facebook page. Um, so if you're on face, Facebook, um, they could just, you know, like the page and also send a message to be included in um, the PASA update. Um, there's also an email, you know, which uh, people can send the requests to be updated on issues about Passes campaign. So it's uh, passa at ilpsaustralia.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast today, baby. Thank you, Max, for having me on your program. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. on your dial. You've just been hearing from Ravi Mernyas from the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, or PASA, on their concerns with the recent proposed amendments to the ASIO Bill.
The second part of my conversation with Ravi, which concerns impacts of COVID-19 on international students, particularly Filipino students, and the incredible importance of migrant community activism, both here and in the Philippines, will be broadcasting next week. So please do tune back in for that. Um, but for now, stay tuned for more excellent Radical Radio on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5.5 a.m. on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Thank you all for listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. So first up, we heard from Dr. Nikki Moody, a Gomorrah woman and sociologist based at the University of Melbourne who came to discuss recent changes to the university sector in Australia. And then we heard some amazing conversations from Writing Black, an event that was presented online by the Wheeler Centre in partnership with the Emerging Writers Festival last Thursday. And lastly, Max did an interview with the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, uh, who shared their grave concerns with the proposed amendments to the ASIO Bill, which threatened to severely limit democratic rights. And stay tuned now for Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.